0: episode 27 of the floss for science podcast the podcast about free libre and open source software and science today patrick and i are interviewing ralph gommers about numpy and scipy hi ralph thank you for being with us today hi david Hi, hey, patrick yeah thanks for having me how would you introduce yourself to our listeners uh, so i'm uh, from the netherlands i'm an experimental
1: physicist by training so i did a postdoc a uh, phd postdoc in atomic physics and quantum gases after that, I you know, gradually changed into a data scientist, I left academia. I went to work in, in the semiconductor industry for uh, seven years. I've been an open source software developer and maintainer for over 10 years now. And I've been working on NumPy and SciPy since I've been contributing since 2008 and been one of the main maintainers since 2010. And besides technical work and and release management, I focused a lot on helping to grow and diversify the the teams that work on these projects. Besides that, I've been a board member of NumFocus for six years. I stopped doing that one and a half years ago, but I'm I'm still involved um, in some of the uh, community building projects that they're having there. So for the listeners that don't know, NumFocus is the nonprofit that supports open source scientific computing uh, the whole PyData ecosystem, as well as Julia, our OpenSci, and other important projects in many languages. Okay. So today I'm, I'm the director of QuantSight Labs, which is the non-profit uh, division of QuantSight, which is a small consulting company focused on mainly working with scientific Python and data science applications.
0: Can you talk with us about what you did during your PG in POSA?
1: Uh, yeah so i did my phd at ucl in london and i worked on basically building an experimental setup uh, with quantum gases optical lattices to simulate uh, statistical physics models Uh, so you basically take uh, gases like for you know regular gases like sodium rubidium uh, cool them down to almost absolute zero Um, and and then stick them in a three-dimensional optical lattice that kind of simulates what a metal looks like Uh, and because it's so cold you can you know extremely well characterize it and you know do experiments on it basically you know it's like an analog simulator where you just let it evolve then you take a picture and it, it tells you kind of the processes that happen in a metal as well but you can't observe them there. So it was a really fundamental field of study. It doesn't have many applications except for uh, atomic clocks. Uh, so the most accurate way to keep track of time. Um, but other than that, it was more you know trying to understand how physics in uh, metals and semiconductors and those types of materials work.
0: Okay, and were you using open source tool at that time? Uh, yes.
1: So that that's actually when I started. So I. Um, I had uh, programmed a little before, uh, but when I started my PhD, I decided to do it right and throw out everything that I, that I knew. I start with Linux, start with Vim, uh, start with Python. Uh, and I was still you know, used a few proprietary tools like uh, LabVIEW, for example, but there was you know, mostly open source to my PhD.
2: Okay. When did you learn to write code and was Python the first programming language you learned?
1: Uh, So, the very first one was Visual Basic uh, when I was probably around 12 years old. So, you you learn some coding, like the basics. Uh, uh, I don't remember. It's a really long time ago. Then I I stopped doing that and got another programming course in university. Uh, There wasn't much, you know, there probably still isn't much focus on programming in physics courses today. But back then, it was very little. So, it was one course of numerical algorithms with Pascal. And during my master's thesis, uh, I learned C, which is the first time I, I really had to do something interesting with a programming language.
2: Hmm. Okay. Besides NumPy and SciPy, do you have any other side projects that you feel proud about?
1: Uh, yes. The main, the main one I would say is uh, PyWavelets. Wavelets. Um, it's a, it's a smaller project. Um, so Wavelets are basically signal analysis tools for signals that are not stationary in time so if for a stationary signal you'd use the fourier transform uh, to get a frequency spectrum Uh, if something changes in frequency and in time you want to use wavelets Uh, so this is a a project that was started around 2006 by philippe uh, someone from poland and it kind of languished, you know, for years. But uh, you know, we found it was a very important tool, and it was like a hole in the whole ecosystem. Uh, so I picked it up, um, modernized it, and then found some other contributors. And right now, it's kind of a, you know, like a stable package. It's kind of done, which is really nice, actually. Like once in a while, you know, someone comes along to add a new feature, or you know, it's it's almost almost bug free, I would say, and it's a dependency of. Uh, scikit image for example Uh, so it's a it's a very nice little project
0: nice so we'll go back to numpy and all of that uh, the main topic of the interview Uh, what would be your one minute elevator pitch for numpy
1: numpy provides n-dimensional arrays uh, which are the data structure that's basically the foundation of much of numerical and scientific computing with python and so it makes it very easy to process data with only a few lines of code in a performance way. Um, It's a very old project. So it it was one of the first to introduce uh, array computing in an interpreted language. Uh, So it's fundamental concepts like uh, factorization and indexing and broadcasting are quite important to understand even when you use other array or tensor libraries. So for example, for deep learning, if you use PyTorch, Uh, TensorFlow, it basically uses the exact same concepts that they took over from NumPy.
0: Okay, so vectors, uh, vector array, mean, were not available in Python before NumPy? Uh, No. So, well, there was this numeric,
1: which is basically the predecessor of NumPy that that was created back in 1995. And then in 2003, someone created NumArray. And then there were two array packages, and there was kind of a split in the community. Uh, so then in 2005, uh, Travis Oliphant created uh, NumPy to kind of unify those again and have a single array data structure to build on. Uh, but it basically was a, a merge of those two code bases, um, you know, with some modernizations on top.
0: Okay. My programming language background started mostly at matlab and like yeah i did some basic in the past but like proper programming with matlab which is like all multi-dimensional so i was aware of that limitation of python originally uh, what got you involved with the numpy project um
1: i was a user from 2004 and, and at the time there was no github there wasn't good documentation there was there was very little. There was no Stack Overflow, so you really had to follow the mailing list to basically learn what's going on. Because it was also right at the time where NumPy was being created, so things you know changed every month. So that was the first time I really observed how open source actually is built and how communities work, uh, which was which was very interesting. But at that point, I didn't feel like I could contribute anything meaningfully. Uh, since I was, you know, very new to to Python and still learning, so I followed along for a couple of years, and then in 2008, um, there was an astronomy professor named, named Joe Harrington, who, you know, had enough of the documentation not being as good as MATLAB because he wanted to teach in Python because it's nicer to use, but his students were really struggling with documentation, so we organized this what we called a a, a doc marathon, so. Uh, The team built a distributed, like a wiki editor, basically, so that everyone could write and provide documentation without having to use subversion or having commit access to the code base. So I thought that was a nice way to contribute back. So I wrote a lot of documentation, uh, like I helped manage that project a little. And I did that again in 2009. And from there on, uh, I think in 2010 was like the, the big switch when, the release manager of NumPy quit. So he just sent an email to the mailing list saying, you know, I quit, who wants the job? And then no one <laughs> replied for five days. So uh, <laughs> a, I kind of don't know what I'm doing, but you know, I can give it a try if there's no one more qualified. So <laughs> um, that, that's how it started. So it, I, I made a release of NumPy and then straight after someone was like, oh, you know, great. We got, we got NumPy out the door now. You know, what about SciPy? i Oh, well, what, what about scipy and yeah you know, this other guy was doing scipy as well so that then i did scipy too
0: and you know
1: it, it was it was kind of fun i learned a lot so i kept doing it
0: kind of an happy accident yep <laughs> <laughs> um considering numpy itself uh is it um a library that should be used directly by uh, the, the, scientific, the scientist programming or should it be more used as a downstream or an, an upstream of some project uh, to develop uh, as a basis from for other stuff? What is the, the target user for Num- NumPy?
1: Um, it, it's both. I would say most users of scientific Python and data science use NumPy directly. Uh, if you're mostly working with arrays, um, NumPy will be One of the main tools you use if you're doing data science and you're mostly, you know, having your data in CSV files or or data frames, um, then you use pandas, I guess, as the basic data structure and pandas is built on top of NumPy. Yeah, so you use it both directly and all other like scipy, uh, scikit-learn, scikit-image, like they're all built on top of NumPy as well. So, in that way, NumPy has kind of this dual role. And, you know, sometimes that's a a little difficult because designing something as an intuitive API for end users or, you know, the right level of abstraction for a library is not always identical. But But so far, we've, you know, we've managed to strike this balance reasonably well.
0: Okay. Uh, Python usually has a uh, as a philosophy of ba- having battery included. Uh, is NumPy part of the core packages, or like do you need to install it, or does it come usually pre-installed with Python?
1: Uh, no, it's not part of the standard library. Uh, that that has been discussed a number of times. Um, but, uh, not not recently anymore. Um, back like ten, fifteen years ago, it was. Kind of important because packaging and installing was really hard right now i'd say numpy is the single most popular library that's not part of the standard install and you know installing it isn't so hard anymore because python itself now has pip so you know pip install numpy should just work on any machine um, also you have distributions like anaconda that are a single download and you know contain numpy as well as you know many other popular libraries so at the moment you know I, I wouldn't want it to be part of the standard library anymore because then there's a lot of overhead you can only do a release once every one and a half years because you're tied to the python release cycle you know it takes a long time to to upgrade something because you know if there's a new python version you now people may still want to use the older python version and you know you get stuck with an outdated numpy so it, it's nice to be able to maybe some features into the into python itself for example you know it took a long time to get a dedicated matrix multiplication operator uh, and that was basically the numpy team that that wanted that took a lot of talking with the python core developers but finally we got that and that was nice but i, I wouldn't want more of it to become part of python itself
2: okay so what kind of features provided by numpy are missing from vanilla python
1: uh, I would almost answer pretty much everything. <laughs> so vanilla Python just isn't, it's a general programming language. It has very few features that are specific for numerical or scientific computing. So data structures like lists, uh, dictionaries are are not optimized for handling large amounts of data. Python does have data types like, you know, it has float and integer, um, but it doesn't have, like, you know, 8-bit, 16-bit, 32 32- and 64-bit integers and, and the same for float and complex. So, yeah, there's there's very little you can do with Python without NumPy or, or a similar library if you have a large amount of data and want to process it in a reasonable amount of time.
2: Okay. So during my courses in Python, so I was introduced to the built-in Python lists. And can you let us know what are the major differences of the numpy array and this Python built-in list, which most people use for their first attempt to code anything in Python?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. So there are two things a list uh, can do. Like it's built for uh, appending to efficiently. So typically you start with an empty list and you add elements to it one by one and lists can then also contain different types of objects so if you want you know a number a a string and an instance of some class you can put them all into the same list Um, so it's very flexible Uh, but that flexibility comes at at a cost like it's really slow it has a lot of overhead so arrays are homogeneous so you have to choose when you create it how big it is and how many elements you want um, and what kind of elements you want to put in it, you know? So typically, you know, you create some, let's say a two dimensional array of 64 bit floats. Um, but at that point it's, it's not only, you know, orders of magnitude faster. Um, you also get a lot more operations. Like you can do indexing, you can take, you know, do things like take the mean over, a, over a whole dimension or over the whole array, you know, with a list, you would have to loop over every element. And manually, you know, build the result that you want. And with Arrays, you get a lot of built-in mathematical operations. I so guess that's the, that's the essential difference.
0: Actually, I would have a follow-up question regarding that. Uh, is it, uh, like, because Array usually have um, homogeneous data type with <laughs> all of them, uh, is it possible to have a struct as well with kind of rows of different data types?
1: Yes, that's that's possible. So you can make in NumPy what's called a structured D type, um, and you can you can make that any combination of other types that you want. So if you want to put a string, an integer, and a complex number together, uh, that can be like your new structured D type, and then that's the you know the combination of primary D types that's repeated over and over as an array.
0: Okay,
2: perfect. So, some of my colleagues were debating that inserting or appending entries to a NumPy array is not as trivial possible as it is with Python's list. Can you elaborate on this? Uh,
1: yes. So, it would, of course, be easily possible for us to provide a feature uh, or a function to do this, um, but it's made hard on purpose because an array essentially is a block of memory with a uniform layout. So the way a computer works, if you want to add something to that, you might not get like the next bit of memory. So if you add one element to a large array, you know what essentially happens is that you have to copy all of the data to a new place in memory, and this is this is going to be really slow. So we try to not provide features that seem convenient but are going to slow you slow your program down a lot without you noticing. So and besides it's not it's typically not what you what you need it's very unusual that you have to actually do this uh, because a normal routine for scientific computing is you have all your data um you load it in you kind of figure out what size it is you allocate the right type you know the right size arrays and then you go from there um so it's typically not needed
2: okay so Another interesting aspect is parallel computations. If you do scientific computing, so is there any way included in NumPy to write multi-threaded code, or can you only do single-threaded code without any additional library, or how can one implement parallelized NumPy code?
1: Oh yes, that's that's a very big topic. <laughs> so N- NumPy itself, the the code is single-threaded. Um, except for some of the linear algebra operations, because those are built on top of OpenBlast or MKL, um, which are inherently multi-threaded. So if you do like a, an inner product, it will automatically use all the cores on, on your CPU by default, typically. So you can use standard Python multiprocessing with NumPy. There's also other libraries like Dask that are essentially taking NumPy and putting a parallel... Uh, data structure on top of it and the reason it's not in numpy itself is because we have to limit scope somewhere Um, so we provide this nice building block and if you make it multi threaded then uh, you can get you know it makes it harder to put other multi-thread stuff on top so it's just a matter of kind of limiting the scope and we make sure that it you know it works nicely with multi-processing it works nicely with Uh, with dask and you know you can basically any standard way in python to do something multi-processing or multi-threaded will work with numpy
2: okay and what about distributed array processing for example mpi or any other tool
1: uh yes so dask also gives you distributed arrays Uh, so it scales really nicely up to the order of a thousand arrays uh sorry a thousand machines if you go well beyond that yeah then you have to probably start thinking about other solutions we've had a lot of discussions about relying on something like mpi um, the problem is that that's very hard to do uh, and make it portable so if you see how numpy is distributed you know by you know on pypi where you can install it with pip or you know with conda you have to provide pre-built binaries. We also have to provide them not only for Linux, but Windows, Mac. uh, You know, there's ARM builds, PowerPC, and MPI is basically not portable enough to do this reliably.
2: Okay. So if you look into data sciences and machine learning, a hot topic are GPU devices. So can you tell us about the support of GPU computations within Python or NumPy? Uh,
1: Yes. So in python you have multiple options so numpy itself doesn't contain any gpu code for basically the same reason as distributed arrays it's quite complex and you know it's hard to do everything in a single project there's a nice uh, project called qpy which essentially is just numpy on a gpu so it has the exact same api and semantics it doesn't implement like every last feature of numpy but all the most used ones it has and then of course you have a library like pytorch which you know is mostly aimed at deep learning but the core of it you know the tensor which is basically as an, you know the same as the n-dimensional array in numpy is you know runs on a gpu and and also has the, the similar api and the same semantics with indexing and broadcasting and vectorization so, you, you have, you know, besides PyTorch, QPy, you have TensorFlow, you have MXNet, you can use Numba to create GPU kernels. Uh, so, there, there are many ways to use GPUs, but not with pure NumPy itself.
2: Okay. So, NumPy includes some of the linear algebra functions. Can you tell us what kind of functions are included or what kind of linear algebra people can do?
1: Ah, yes. So this is a little little historical. So SciPy has a lot more linear algebra than NumPy. The reason that NumPy has some is that it used to be really hard to install SciPy, harder than NumPy. Uh, so the decision was made to take the most commonly used linear algebra, algebra functions and put them into NumPy. Uh, so this is um, dot products, singular value decomposition, QR decomposition. And tensor dot products, a few more things like that. And then the one kind of unusual one, which which actually was kind of created in NumPy itself and then made popular and then taken over in other libraries, is a function called einsum, which is basically like most physicists will be familiar with this, is Einstein summation. So it's a very flexible way of doing all sorts of um, vector matrix multiply type operations.
2: Okay, so do the functions provided by SciPy and NumPy conflict, or is the API the same, or how does this work? Uh,
1: So the API is almost the same. Uh, So there are a couple of um, slight incompatibilities that really should disappear at some point, but they're there for historical reasons. But essentially, you can think about SciPy linear algebra as a large superset of what's in NumPy
2: okay so since we were talking more about the computer science aspect and implementation details of numpy so really classic question you have heard a lot probably how do you reply to people complaining that python is always slow due to its interpreted nature
1: (laughs) yep yeah hearing that less lately since like all of the performance uh, deep learning is chosen to use python but my impression is that yeah sometimes it's true but the complaints are mostly from people that are not users. So if you look at NumPy, like all the performance critical parts are implemented in C and it will be as fast or faster than if you try to do that yourself, uh, because it's quite hard to write optimized C well. Um, The same for SciPy, like it's a mix of five languages. All the, you know, the really critical parts are C, C++ and Fortran. And, Essentially, you know, why Python is popular is because people time is more important than CPU time. So you start with something that you can develop quickly, you know, it might not run at at lightning speed, but you'll make it work correct and then you profile it. And then typically it's fast enough because the critical parts are, you know, in NumPy which is already optimized C. Or if you find a hotspot in some pure Python code that you wrote that you can't easily translate to like a built-in function call in NumPy, then you can take just that piece and rewrite it in, in Cyton or you know, use NumBot to accelerate it. That way you can get the performance that you need and develop the programs that you're interested in writing uh, many times faster than if you would do everything in a low-level language. Okay.
0: NumPy is only a library part of the Python ecosystem, but probably like MATLAB could be considered as a at least partially as a proprietary counterpart to those features. How would you compare MATLAB and Python with NumPy in terms of flexibility of handling data?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so this is a this is a good question. And and back when I started around uh, 2008, I'd say MATLAB was was bigger than Python and. and Python itself plus NumPy, SciPy, and Matplotlib, was kind of a replacement for, for MATLAB for many people. So I think around 2010, 2012 is when Python plus NumPy's ecosystem, I think, you know, surpassed MATLAB. Maybe not yet in popularity, but definitely in functionality. So I think... The one thing that MATLAB still does better, it has a nice integrated experience. Right? So it's one download. Um, it's pretty obvious what you have to use. It has one IDE, so you don't have any choices to make as a user. Um, documentation for both is is quite good now, so there's not much difference there. But as a language, uh, Python is, is way nicer than MATLAB, of course. Uh, it's, it's more flexible. It has better IDE support. It's faster if you compare numpy to the built-in data structures in in matlab uh, numpy has way more data types yeah it's it's more popular nowadays so so there's a lot it's a lot easier to find other libraries that are built on top of it uh, those are typically better documented easier to install as well so overall i would say it's it's also nice that python and numpy and that uh, this whole ecosystem is open source free to install that saves you a lot of headaches but that's not the the important thing like it's it's just a a nicer language to use and i've used python and matlab side by side for you know at least 5 years where i had the day job uh, in matlab and then you know in the evening i, I wrote python uh, and i think you know when you're used to python and you have to go back to matlab you feel that you're just missing data structures even very simple fundamental things like dictionaries don't exist in matlab so it's almost like programming with one hand behind your back
0: okay and was it easy to transition from matlab to to numpy and python in general like if a new user wants to convert their workflow from matlab to python like they probably have to learn new stuff but or is it an easy transition
1: I would say, yeah. I mean, as transitions go, they probably they have a lot of the same concepts. So, you know, you, you have to think in a similar way. Both in MATLAB and Python, for example, you shouldn't write for loops. Like, they're going to be really slow. So the, the fundamental concepts are the same. A lot of the functions uh, map very well as well. So for plotting, you know, MATLAB to MATplotlib works quite nicely same in numpy like array creation you know it's like create an array of zeros or ones uh, is basically essentially the same function calls as in matlab so it it maps really well i mean it's still going to be work and the harder part i guess is figuring out like what you know what idiomatic python looks like because there's you know there's a lot more data structures and a lot more ways of doing things than in matlab but overall i think if you're in matlab Anyone want transition somewhere, Python is the most obvious place and, and closest in terms of concepts to do it.
0: Okay. And is there, like, we previously talked about the fact that uh, Python was interpreted just like MATLAB and even R. Uh, is there in, in any performance difference between, f- like, specific kind of functions between in MATLAB and, and Python? Is one uh, relatively slower than the other ones, or...? It's about the same.
1: Um, yeah, so it depends on what. So often a lot of the heavy lifting is linear algebra. And in the end, both Python and MATLAB use uh, MKL or OpenBlast under the hood. So that will be the same speed, essentially. And for other fundamental operations, like just adding all the elements in two arrays to each other, they're they're both about as fast as you can do it so there won't be much difference there when you go to more complex algorithms you'll start to see bigger differences Uh, so on average the the python as a language and an interpreter is a couple of times faster than matlab but for scientific algorithms it often depends on you know the exact implementations the the algorithms might be slightly different Uh, matlab it might be written in in um, max or java under the hood uh, in python it might be Cython or Numba or plain c so you'll start seeing functions differences like individually uh, but i'd say on average python is a little faster but it's not it's not why you should make a switch
0: okay yeah probably not give or take like Yeah. Uh, are you aware of commercial applications of numpy beside machine learning and all of that <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yes yeah <laughs> yeah that would i mean that'd be the most obvious thing to point to like yeah you know, the whole deep learning space um but yeah there you know almost every industry um use and every company will use python and numpy somewhere i worked in in the semiconductor industry for a long time and it was it was used very extensively so i was working in a company called asml which wakes machines with which intel and samsung and these kind of companies print their computer chips so they are really these you know 50 hundred million dollar machines and there's a lot of python and numpy there and um, i I wrote a blog post recently about the work we did at consite with a company called tdk which is a very large electronics company and they use python based stack for for testing all the chips that they make so if you go into finance or biomedical applications or any major field you can think of, it will have lots of applications.
0: Okay. And while you're working with these companies and as your member of NumPy, do you see any contribution back from the, from the industry? Um, it's
1: starting to become more. And, and often you, you don't always know, right? Because people send pull requests as individuals and they may do that as part of their job, but you typically don't notice. But I think historically the contributions have been small, like a minor part of the overall effort. And it's starting to get better. Uh, and you can see you know really, up until two, three years ago, um, it wasn't as critical as now with the you know the explosion in, in deep learning and data science, um, you really see much more contributions back from large companies. Like there's just the first person that Amazon hired to work on Numpy full-time showed up like this week. Uh, Intel has been contributing for a while, yeah. Other, other smaller companies as well, um, but I think there's there's definitely a trend that three years ago this was extremely small, and it starts to get now you know a significant part of the overall contributions.
0: Okay, it's nice to see Amazon embracing that as well because they've not been kind of a appreciated uh, user of uh, open source software recently due to the some of the stuff in AWS.
1: Oh yes, for sure but uh, but I think with with the uh, with the python stack you, you see all the major companies starting to take an interest like uh, Microsoft packages on Azure and I think for Amazon the interest is simply like they need whatever their customers use to run as fast as possible on their infrastructure right so they need these projects to be healthy and stable because in the end you know there's there's so much volume of scientific computing data science uh, deep learning going on on aws that it it makes perfect business sense for them to contribute back
2: let us switch to the second topic of the episode scipy a library for scientific computing based on numpy so again what would be your fir- uh, one minute elevator pitch for scipy uh,
1: so scipy's goal is to provide the fundamental algorithms needed for scientific computing with python for inclusion algorithms need to be uh, applicable to multi, multiple domains. Uh, so you'll have things like Fourier transforms, image processing, signal processing, linear algebra, interpolation, numerical optimization, uh, special functions, as well as some, uh, some data structures like sparse matrices and, and KD trees that are important for scientific computing, but a little more niche than uh, numpy rates. And... So it's really like the next level up from NumPy, and it it tries to provide like a good foundation for every such field. And then um, on top of that, you'll have uh, scikit. So, for example, um, Scipy has clustering, and then Scikit Learn has you know much more elaborate and fancy clustering algorithms. Uh, same for uh, image processing. Like Scipy has like a, a lot of the basics that you need. And if you need more, there's scikit-image, like which is a whole host of specialized algorithms.
2: Okay. So we were already discussing that NumPy and SumTime both have some linear linear algebra packages. And we already discussed these, but I think SunPy, uh, SciPy has a lot of more packages. Could you provide us a brief overview of the kind of packages and explain briefly their functionality?
1: Uh, sure. So... In total, there are about 17 submodules, and and those are all pretty much independent. So there are some small ones like uh, clustering, which I just mentioned. Um, there's uh, there's a constants module which provides anything like you know from Planck's constant to uh, the ra- you know the radius of the sun, uh, any kind of constant you may need for scientific computing. I'll focus on the largest and most popular modules. Say scipy.stats, which is any kind of um, statistical function for inference. Um, the scipy.sparse contains all of the basic statistics you will need, uh, things like t-tests, a kernel density module, over a hundred continuous and discrete probability distributions. Then there's sparse, which provides sparse matrices and sparse linear algebra very important for certain applications and is also heavily used by scikit-learn then there's fourier transforms um, that's a small module it's kind of finished signal processing provides impulse trend, uh, filters any kind of like 1d signal processing uh, time series functionality then optimization is one of the other large modules that are used a lot basically provides uh root finders and uh, minimization algorithms yeah <laughs> it's a it's a broad question there's you know scipy is it's deep in some places but it's it's extremely broad so that, that that's why it's a foundation for pretty much any other package out there
0: so a general package of algorithms used widely in science and many fields so it's it's kind yeah. of hard to, to to target yeah. a single function it,
1: it's um Uh, I'll I'll quote what uh, Travis, one of the original creators of SciPy, said. It's SciPy is a distribution masquerading as a package. So there's (laughs) like, there's like, you could split it into 17 independent packages. I mean, that doesn't make sense anymore uh, because it would be too disruptive. But there's so much that it, you know, it's a whole distribution rather than a single package.
0: Okay, so we'll switch the community of both packages, like being involved in both of them you probably have a good understanding on the dynamics of the community and like the, the participation in there uh, do you have a rough estimate about how many people are involved in each project
1: uh yes so involvement can can range from like you know, a single bug fix to you know working on it every week for the for the last decade so there each project has typically i think numpa has 10 scipy 15 main maintainers then uh, there's some people as well you know more recently that that focus a lot more on documentation uh, website work so in the order of 20 people per project then a project does a release every six months and you'll see that Between 100 and 150 people contribute to a single release. And over the lifetime of the package, it'll be close to 1,000 people that have contributed. Uh, So it's a sizable community. And there's some overlap between the NumPy and SciPy maintainers. It used to be a lot more. But since the communities have grown so much uh, and and the projects have grown so much, it's it's hard to do both. So uh, there's a bigger split now.
0: Okay. And to attract new contributors, do you participate in Google Summer of Code?
1: this year we won't and for scipy we have done you know for a long time uh, It's it's been really valuable three of our core maintainers are originally summer of code students uh, and so yeah i've always really enjoyed the program for numpy we haven't contributed and we haven't participated because uh, it's a lot harder to work on numpy than scipy since the core of it is is so monolithic so it's really hard to you know to work on that as a student and the risk that you you know you work on something for three months and then it doesn't get integrated because of some you know backwards compatibility reason or whatever it's way higher. So that's why i participate with SciPy but not MP.
0: Okay. And what about Google Seasons of Duck?
1: Oh yes that has been absolutely fantastic. So that was a that was a new program over the past six months. You know, Google focused on getting technical writers involved into open community open source projects, and it was an experiment. And from my perspective, is it has succeeded. So we got we participated with both NumPy and SciPy, and got so many good applicants that we decided to you know work really hard to scrape some money together so we could hire five of them instead of the one for NumPy and one for SciPy uh, that Google gave us and so, some really interesting work has been done so for numpy we got a new numpy for absolute beginners tutorial that that really is a more friendly introduction to numpy than we had uh, in our own documentation and uh, for scipy uh it both like a massive amount of, of smaller contributions but also every module is getting uh like a graphical like kind of like a like a tree diagram uh, for each module so that you can kind of make sense of kind of how a module is grouped in a visual way rather than you have this listing of 100 functions in a module. Uh, so that was a, a really nice uh, improvement that, that made the docs easier to navigate. Okay.
0: Uh, what are the main communication channels within each of the NumPy and SciPy projects?
1: Uh, so the... The single most important communication channel has always been the mailing list, um, because that's a that's a public forum where, in the end, like all important decisions have to be approved, so everyone gets a chance to weigh in. For NumPy, since you know in the past two years we've had uh, a reasonable amount of, of funding, so we had a couple of full time developers. Uh, we've had the you know both the need and the opportunity to to run weekly community calls. Um, where we could discuss high-level topics like we're running our first survey soon uh, to we're developing a new website uh, to more um, in-depth code-related discussions. Um, So that's an important and that's an open call. So anyone who's interested in how NumPy development works can join that. Then GitHub, of course, is a very important um, communication mechanism. Uh, We also recently created um, a private... Uh, Slack channel. And the reason is that we found that as such a large project, it may be intimidating for people to contribute. So if they have like beginner questions, like how to go about contributing or whether their idea is actually a good idea, some people are hesitant to ask that in public. So we say like, you know, we prefer that you, that you work in public because that's how open source work. But you know, if it's your first time, like come join us on Slack and we'll help you out.
0: Okay, and do you mix the contents from each of those channel? Uh, like, do you have specific channels for developers, for support requests, general discussion? Do you have a, a stack exchange place or?
1: Ah, uh, yes. So, NumPy has only a single list, and that's because there there was often like it was not a clear split between you know what's development and what's the usage question, but the actual like how do i use function x type questions we we try to direct to stack overflow now uh because the volume of it gets so high that we we really can't support that and we need the community kind of you know have many people help each other out i recently counted on stack overflow there's a, over 60000 questions with the numpy tag on it um so that's not something we can handle on on github or on a mailing list anymore
0: now and the signal to noise ratio would be way too high
1: yeah, because you know, you, you when you send something to a mailing list, you'll send something to a thousand people or so. So it'd be nice if that was that was an, an, an interesting, relevant question. So it does happen sometimes that people bring up Stack Overflow questions, like you know, a lot of people bump into the same problem. Well, we should definitely take that along. But Stack Overflow is a, is a good first spot for uh, user questions now.
2: Okay. Do you have any vacant positions in both communities, or are you looking for specific contributors?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, like like most open source projects, you're always looking for contributors. And um, I think the uh, what I'm most interested in at the moment, and we've made some, some uh, a good start on, is to really grow contributions and teams um, focused on other areas than just code so for numpy we have now created a separate documentation team that's interested in well not only documentation of individual functions via doc strings but really higher quality educational materials and navigation of the docs those kind of things Uh, we also have a website team we also have a real need for people with other skills than uh than we traditionally find in these projects like fundraising uh, marketing drawing like technical illustrations I, I recently saw someone make a really nice video tutorial and you know it's it's often since that's kind of different people from different communities it's hard to find them and like with when google organized the, the season of docs, you know technical writers often don't know that they're like they're very welcome and, and very valued in open source communities, but I'd say, yeah, re- reach out to us, and if, if this seems like something that makes sense, or even if you're like, a, you know, UX designer, like if you're interested in the project, you know, and you have a particular creative skill that is probably very very relevant.
2: Okay, so if one wants to contribute to NumPy, what is programming language? he should know or what kind of different skills he should bring with?
1: Um, well, at least Python, <laughs> um, since, you know, a lot of work can be done if you know only Python, because um, there's examples, debugging, all the tests are Python. Um, some of the functions are Python as well. To work on NumPy itself, uh, the core of it, you have to have a good grasp of C, for SciPy, it's it's more varied. Like we have a real shortage, for example, of people with with Fortran skills, because uh, a lot of SciPy still is Fortran, uh, but it's it's you know a less popular language now, and it's it's hard to find people that uh, that really like to write Fortran code. Besides that, like a general, you know, how do I use GitHub? How do I how do I interact effectively? You know, in this you know in an online community like this. Yeah. And any, the other part I'd like to point out is uh, domain specific skills for SciPy are very, very important as well. We have many maintainers who, you know, may have only been self-taught programmers, uh, but they happen to be a statistics expert or a numerical optimization expert. And that domain specific expertise is is very valuable because for, for someone like me, like it's really hard to be an expert on signal processing and statistics and Clustering and and sparse matrices. So, I kind of know everything half, but you know, I can often help people with code. But if a real expert comes along, it's like, hey, you know, I'm familiar with this algorithm. I have read all the literature. That's that's amazingly helpful.
2: Okay. So, on GitHub, do you have any labels for first time bug fixes or easy issues so people could find the things they could work on?
1: Uh, yes. So there's a, a good first issue label on both projects Um, so that's always a good way to start also just reading the documentation you know you typically see something like you know missing examples for functions or even things like typos to get the like the workflow of contributing down so anything as a user you see that is like you know this probably should work differently or it's incomplete um is also a really good way to start
0: okay okay uh now we'll switch to a slightly lighter topic but probably close to your heart as well being a scientist uh what is your vision of floss and its importance for the openness of science
1: okay so let's start with the latter half it's important for openness i I think it's it's extremely important i'm of the opinion that you know if you do science uh, you write papers and present results and not provide any code or you provide your code but you can't read what's underneath the, the the science is kind of incomplete because the essence of science is really like, you know, to share results that are reproducible and openness is kind of a prerequisite for full reproducibility. Uh, it's not enough, but it's a prerequisite. And um, then my vision of where it should go. So I think, you know, we've made huge strides in the last 10 years, uh, you know, or even longer. And in the past couple of years, funders and traditional academic institutions and journals are starting to recognize that open source software is a thing and it's important. For example, for, for scipy, we, uh, after 18 years, we just published our first paper. And for, for a long time, we had a, had a discussion like, you know, my trust in academic journals wasn't extremely high. So I was just going to send it to an, to an open access journal and be done with it. Um, but you know, it, I'm not an academic anymore, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much to me, but other people who had worked on SciPy by a lot, like they really wanted a high profile journal. Uh, so we picked scientific reports, which is a nature journal yep. and got rejected straight away. It's like, oh, this isn't, <laughs> this is not science. You know, this is not new. Um, <laughs> uh, so then we had another discussion and we decided to give it one more try. So we sent it to nature methods. So it just got published there like two months ago. And I was amazed that they accepted it, but I think they're pretty happy with the decision as well now, because it's the trending as the most popular article of nature methods, like with 10 times more noise than the second most popular article. <laughs> nice. So, so, so I think there's a long way to go. Um, and I think open source software has has today and has had for a long time a massive impact on science. Um, it's only now I think starting to reform how science works a little, how academic credit works. I mean, that will take many more years probably, you know, to really be valued the way it should be valued. But yeah, individual scientists are, you know, adopting open source en masse and, you know, it's making their lives better so uh, i'm just hoping to see more packages and more fields like there are some fields like uh like machine learning that have a very strong tradition now of publishing code and you know as open source with their publications and i'm, I'm hoping to see more scientific domains pick that up okay
0: and do you think that floss on like floss itself can have a negative impact on science um
1: no (laughs) i mean first reaction is no i don't see how how that would ever be a negative um i can see that you know people who have worked like behind closed walls for a long time might be threatened that other people run away with their code or something but you know having been in this space for a long time i think that's that's a false worry and being open about what you do sharing your code helps accelerate science and and I think comes with both recognition and feedback that accelerates your own just the, the science you are doing as an individual scientist or group.
0: Yeah, attribution is still a thing with open source software.
1: Yes, <laughs> attribution is hard, and you know I think we've got the who wrote what code figured out yet. Then getting credit for that is another one. But you know, with the it being easier to to write journal articles, that becomes a little better. I think we still have a long way to go in figuring out how we credit things other than writing code.
0: Do you know Do you know about the Journal of Open Source Software, Joss?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, I've actually uh, published one paper in it on Pi Wavelets. Okay. Um, and I really like it. I'm also aware that it's basically a hack that's only needed because the academic credit system is completely broken yeah um so i wish it weren't needed uh, but i i very much appreciate uh the uh, jaws
2: okay we are almost done with the interview and we will proceed with some of our classic quick questions in recent years what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery
1: um so as a physicist i'm i'm gonna pick something from physics uh, so for me that was uh, ligo uh, so the the discovery of gravitational waves you know this was 20 30 years in the making and it was pretty amazing that something that we were pretty sure existed but it was predicted by einstein 100 years back uh, was only you know we were only able to discover it now so that was almost a victory of engineering in science that said i think there, there are probably nowadays more interesting results in uh, fields like biology and genomics than there are in all in the fields like physics. Um, but I'd be hard-pressed to figure out know, what's the most notable one in the last few
0: years. Still, the, the, the day we'll discover what dark matter is, that's going to be a great thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's definitely another one. <laughs>
2: so what is your favorite text processing tool? Oh, that's easy, Vim. <laughs> Good, nice and easy. Yep.
0: Is there a topic in science about which you recently changed your mind about?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, no, I don't know. Um, I could have thought about this earlier, but uh, like, I'm not very involved in like I'm not a scientist anymore. Um, so if I would pick something, that that it would probably be some some social topic, like you know how open source in science works.
0: Okay. We'll go to the next question. <laughs> yeah. uh, is there anything else we forgot to ask you about that we shouldn't have known to ask you about or anything else you'd like to share with us? Um, yeah, so
1: I would actually, you know, be interested. Like I spend most of my time not, not working on open source and technical work, but on community building uh, and on kind of growing... The community beyond individual projects and increasing the amount of funding that's available, because I think you know it's twenty twenty now, and and if you see how heavily we're used and you know we've exploded to probably on the order of forty million users over the last couple of years, uh, it's not doable anymore with with just volunteer effort. It's actually kind of amazing that you know we got to this point with until 2017, zero funding for NumPy. SciPy uh, has never had any funding until about two months ago where we got $200,000 for the first time from the Chan Zuckerberg Institute. Um, So that, that would be a very interesting topic and, you know, maybe worth even devoting a whole podcast on at some point. Um, But this is also at at Quantside Labs, what I spent most of my time on, like growing communities, diversifying them beyond people writing just code um, and getting people to even like, Pay uh, you know a fraction of the value you know the, of that they're using and and helping to further improve this ecosystem.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you very much, Ralph, for your time in this interview. Uh, for our listeners, what would be the best way to contact you?
1: Uh, email would be best. So my email is publicly visible on my GitHub profile, uh, which is r.gomers r g o m m e r s, and Twitter Ralph Gomers is also possible. <laughs>
2: okay thank you thank you
1: thanks guys it was really interesting
2: this will be all for today's episode of the floss for science podcast i hope you enjoyed the interview you can reach me on twitter at dlpk and you can reach me at underscore dbras or both of
0: us at floss for science also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues.
2: Our website is on flossforscience.com where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our episodes or find the RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in your next episode. Bye. Bye.